0: morning, y'all. Beautiful song by Matt. Our fear has betrayed us. We are continuing our series this morning talking about blind spots. Y'all, I feel this might be one of our most important series that I've been a part of here at Grace Point. With this series, we are taking our knowledge and insight and we are actually applying it to our lives. This is very practical in the series Blind Spots, we are asking what are our hidden biases, what are our hidden prejudices. We are admitting to ourselves that we actually have them. We are admitting to each other that we actually carry these things. And so we're looking at a few of our major biases that we both carry individually and that are also out there systemically and corporately. And this is good work for us, yes? Yes. Yes. Now, speaking literally of blind spots, two examples I wanted to start off with this morning. I promised Ben that I would no longer use them for sermon examples, at least for today. So I give him that. So a couple of months ago, the kids and I were driving to Atlanta for my cousin's funeral. We had to go down and back in one day. And so it was a lot for all the reasons. And a couple of things that I think you should know about me is that I drive in the passing lane consistently. I just stay over there. I like to drive fast. I drive just right above the speed limit, a few miles above the speed limit. But I stay in that left lane and um, this large semi was in the right lane And he basically merges over into the left lane and literally almost runs us off the road. And so we skid over onto those side bumps that are supposed to wake you up. We call them street whales. That's a story for another time. So we hit those things. We come back over. The kids are screaming. I'm yelling. I'm angry. All these things. So I calm down. I take a deep breath. And I get that little number off the back of the truck. one 800 hows my I'm about to tell you. (laughs) I can't help it, this is me. So I call and I I got a guy on the phone who's probably a supervisor to some extent and I'm telling him the situation and he's like, ma'am, I am so sorry, I'm so glad you are okay. One thing I need to tell you is this size truck basically has a large blind spot. In fact, the size of the blind spot for this size truck fits a small size Cadillac in it. Y'all, I drive a used Cadillac. So I'm like, okay, okay, let me take a deep breath then. My frustration needs to calm. So basically you're telling me this driver probably looked, but he couldn't see me because his blind spot is so large it fits a whole car inside of it. So I think about then how this applies to us and what we're talking about today. That analogy could be that you and I are trying our best to live our lives unbiased, but it's possible that our blind spot is so large that it fits an entire human in it, right? May we be aware. Another example, I was driving just about a month ago, very quickly again, I was on my way to a meeting, I was on the phone with Ron Miller, and these two cars were in front of me going very slow, like unbelievably slow, underneath the speed limit, okay? So we're merging. I live down south, and so I'm merging from 65, getting on, or from 840, getting on to 65. And you know when you merge and the two lanes go into one and then they break back out into two? So as soon as that lane broke back into two, I got over into the left lane, and I felt something, like a car, like a van, like a large, bright yellow van. I hit a large, bright yellow van. I'm okay, they're okay, so you can laugh. Yes. So I then become a very safe driver. I'm like, wait a second, Ron, I have to get off the phone. I'm looking all around. I had to merge all the way back over onto the berm. Got the car, followed me. We merged over. I got out of the car. I checked on them. I checked on our cars. I called the police. I called Ben. Ben was so nice. (laughs) He really was. So I said, literally, Ben, I'm so sorry. And he's like, it's okay, it's okay. Um, He's very gracious. He says, it's really easy to miss a car, I mean a van. I mean a large yellow van like that. (laughs) But the point is, I didn't even look, y'all. I didn't even look. I was so focused on what I was doing and where I was going that I didn't even look. Apply that to our lives. Think about both scenarios this morning when we're talking about biases. What are we trying to see and sometimes missing? What are we also sometimes not even paying attention to or willing to look at? So today we're talking about xenophobia. So what is xenophobia? Lots of you have asked me. So dictionary, let's just look at the noun in itself. It's a noun. It's an unreasonable fear or hatred of foreigners or of strangers or of that which is foreign or strange to us. So it's the dislike or fear of people from other countries or other religions. It describes attitudes, prejudices, or behaviors that reject, that exclude and often vilify people based off of the perception. See, it's all about how we see. Based off the perception that they are outsiders, that they are foreigners to us, to our community, to our society, to our national identity. Xenophobia now, it's often confused with the term racism. It has also often been called racism's evil twin. And the difference is that xenophobia refers to the dislike or fear of something that's different than us. Racism is a belief that one's own race is superior. So while xenophobia comprises multiple aspects, racism is based off of one aspect, one's race. And racism is about power. Racists treat people belonging to one race with often complete disrespect, and they often cause humiliation. And Mickey Scott Bay Jones is going to come with us here in a couple weeks and talk specifically about racism. But I have to at least mention it today because these things are so intertwined. So xenophobia is this fear, then, of the other persons who are not a part of your group or of my group. Now, our groups think about them Our groups can be the people in our neighborhood. It can be the people at our place of worship. It can be people who live in our country. It can be people who have the same racial characteristics that you do. All of these things can be used to indicate one's group. And so our prejudice then is making a decision about something or about someone else without having all the facts, simply based on our own experience or based on hearsay information that we've gathered. Our xenophobia, then, is when we think that we, whether we think we have it or not, sometimes it's based off our religion. Sometimes it's based off of what we have been taught in our classes and in our schools. It's been based off of what we have seen portrayed in movies or read in books. Our xenophobia at times and our fears are sometimes based off of what we see or read in the news. And currently, you can admit we are seeing a rise of xenophobic behavior in our country, yes? These causes, two causes, are put forward to explain this resurgence of fear and of bias. One of them, the first cause, are the new migration patterns that have developed across the world. In the receiving countries, then, like in the U.S., or many other countries who are receiving countries, social groups, then, in unfavorable positions, consider these newcomers as competitors for space. They are competitors for jobs or our public services. This then cultivates a social and political climate that generates xenophobia and racism, as well as nationalism. It demands, then, that the state provide better protection against those foreigners, for our own sake, of course. The second cause of all of this is believed uh, to reinforce xenophobia and racism is globalization. So globalization, it's this process in which people, ideas, and goods spread throughout the world, spurring more interaction and integration between the world's cultures, between the world's governments and economies. And that feels like a beautiful thing, but for some, globalization feels like a loss of some of our individual cultural identities. It feels like a loss, and people become afraid. So in light of this rise of xenophobia, there has been a lot of rhetoric um, online, but there's also been some beautiful things happening. And I want to show just a quick video that some of you may have seen on Facebook. But if you haven't seen it, let's watch this.
1: Dear President Obama, remember the boy who was picked up by the ambulance in Syria? Can you please go get him and bring him to our home? Park in the driveway or on the street, and we'll be waiting for you guys with flags, flowers, and balloons. We will give him a family and he will be our brother. Catherine, my little sister, will be collecting butterflies and fireflies for him. In my school, I have a friend from Syria, Omar, and I will introduce him to Omar, and we can all play together. We can invite him to birthday parties, and he will teach us another language. Since he won't bring toys and doesn't have toys, Catherine will share her big, blue, strappy white bunny, and I will share my bike, and I will teach him how to ride it. I will teach, I will him, teach addition him addition like, and subtraction. Those are the words of a six-year-old boy. He teaches us a lot. The the humanity that a young child can display who hasn't learned to be cynical or suspicious or fearful of other people because of where they're from or how they look or how they pray, we can all learn from Alex. Alex, six years old.
0: We can all learn from Alex, amen? Amen. So healthy responses. The United Nations was a response to the horrors and to the atrocities committed during the Second World War. The founders of the UN um, intended this charter to be a vision of what the world should be. The organization was founded for us to practice tolerance and to do due diligence to live together in peace with one another and to be good neighbors. They believed at the time that no Christian, no Jew, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, no one who is true to the principles of any of the world's faiths, no one who claims a cultural, national, or religious identity based on values such as truth, decency, and justice, No one, then, can be neutral in the fight against intolerance. See, the United Nations emerged from the ashes of the Holocaust in 1945. Anti-Semitism at the time, it caused this xenophobia. So the European populations, they turned their frustrations with their own social and economic problems, they turned them toward the strangers, a situation that is not much different than we are facing today. So the result of that then, though, was 6 million. Six million innocent men, women, and children were murdered just because they were Jewish. A crime against humanity which defies imagination. We cannot wrap our heads and our hearts around it. The United Nations was coined to describe an alliance fighting to end that barbarous um, regime. So in March, I had the privilege of going to Israel with Museum of the Bible, and on our second day in Jerusalem, we visited Yad Vashem, which is this amazing museum that serves as a monument and as a memorial to those six million Jewish people who were killed. The very name of the museum testifies to the erasure of the names. Yad uh, means memorial in Hebrew, and Vashem means name. And our guide explained to us that the Nazis tried to take away the names of the victims, and so we try to give them back their names and their identities as best they can. So throughout this museum, you literally see, you hear, and you read not uh, broad stories. You read individual stories about individual people's lives. They take you through how they grew up, through the work that they do. Finally, um, through the vitriol that they experienced, the years of hiding and being afraid, you literally walk into those trains and into those camps, and you finally walk into the gallows in the death chambers. You sit with the pain, and you feel deeply the sadness and the ache for these beloved human beings The museum literally weaves back and forth until you end in a beautiful circular room with bookshelves upon bookshelves of books of names. They name these individuals. And then above that, there's framed pictures of women, men, and children. And then there's a huge section of empty bookshelves and empty frames which represent the men, women, and children who they could not figure out who they actually were. This was probably one of the most important places and moments of my life. It whispered so loudly and so fiercely, may we remember, may we learn, and may we change. Elie Wiesel says, no human race is superior. No religious faith is inferior. All collective judgments are wrong and only racists make them. So we must think hard about our blind spots. In the book that Stan mentioned last week with the same name, "Blind Spots," it talks about having this burden of suspicion that certain individuals in every society carry around because they belong to a group whose status is suspect. This burden of suspicion can be crushing then for them. Stereotypes, they do not take special effort to acquire, right, it's quite the opposite. Stereotypes, they are acquired effortlessly and they take special effort to discount. Discounting stereotypes is not easy, because of the general mental processes into which stereotypic thinking is embedded, it is in our minds and our hearts. If we think of our minds then as courtrooms in which trials are held on a consistent basis to decide guilt or innocence, one of the downsides of stereotypes is that they compromise due process. Basically, our minds indict a person before a prosecutor even shows up and arrives on the scene. So, consider. How are we xenophobic? Consider just one of many examples, our fear often of other religions. A group identity for which countless people over the centuries and into today have given their lives to and even for. And this despite the fact, see we believe, most of us believe that our religion is the very true one, right? And we believe this despite the fact, realizing that the religion one typically identifies with is a matter often of circumstances. So it's likely that a person who is born in Israel will end up Jewish. A person born in Saudi Arabia will be Muslim. A person born in India will be Hindu. It has to do with circumstances. So what are we afraid of? That's the question we have to keep asking ourselves. More examples that we are or may be xenophobic. Think about the jokes that we tell. Or more importantly, think about the jokes that we laugh at when other people tell them. Often if we laugh, if we think it's funny, It's because we think to some extent it is true. We have to understand that knowledge is power and that in general we need to keep learning, to keep exposing ourselves. That's like why a trip this afternoon is so important. A trip to go see the different worship places in Nashville. It's a fact-finding mission for us. It's also an opportunity for us to experience humanity and those who are different within us. Things like this can only open us up. I've had plenty of opportunities in my 37 years, um, opportunities to stretch my soul and my mind and my heart. A few years ago, Trying to finish up my undergrad and I was taking a major world religion class online and this study reminded me, as often it does for others, of the beauty and diversity of our human race and of our search for God. Um, As a part of that class, you're instructed to go attend a service of a different religion. So I scheduled my visit for the mosque, the same mosque that we'll go to today. It was April 15th, 2013, and it was 1 PM. And that will become very important for you in a minute. And I remember kneeling on the floor, and I'm trying to fold my scarf to put it around my head. And minutes earlier, I had entered into the main doors, which are the men's doors. didn't realize that. And I walked right in. I, like, bounded in, so happy. And I asked a man that worked there, can I put my shoes on the shelf? And he shyly smiled and nodded. And so I walked. I placed my boots on the shelf, and I entered the room. And my contact immediately picked me out because I'm the only woman. I've got this long blonde hair at the time, and I'm just bouncing around with a smile, so happy to be there. And he comes up to me and greets me, and then he quickly leads me to the side and he says, You're welcome to sit in the back, or you can go to the women's room. (laughs) And I complied, which y'all should know that's a big deal. I complied. (laughs) I entered into the hallway, um, into the separate room where the women put all their shoes and where there's a door for the women to enter. And as I joined the women, though, I felt such a wave of peace. I was surrounded by women, and although their heads were covered, I could still see their gentle, inquisitive eyes and their kind smiles. Our attention was drawn to a TV screen where we can see the man, and he begins to speak, and uh, the service begins. And at the same time, April 15th, 1 p.m., if you'll remember, across the country in Boston, Boston is on lockdown. A suspect of the Boston Marathon bombing was still on the loose. This man was a radical, and he also happened to be Muslim. So our country in general was grieving, if you'll remember, it was rightfully so, we were grieving. And we were exposed not only by the news of this tragedy, but we were able to see videos and pictures of everything that was happening. And it hit home for us, all of us. And it's in moments like this, as if we think that Boston is all of our hometowns. And so we were praying as a nation for resolve and for peace. And so I have found in the midst of extreme emotions that for many of us, we tend to let our guards down. And our guards are there sometimes to protect us, and sometimes our guards are there just like walls, um, keeping us from having to expand our personal views. So when we let our guards down, this can often be a good thing. But for others, when you let your guard down, your judgment tends to run high. Our prejudices are exposed by our own ignorance. And so that day, as you can expect, many people lashed out on social media against Islam and against the Muslim community in general. These men and women, they were assaulted by words and by harsh generalities. And it was all fear-driven. People said, they are all terrorists. They are all killers. They are all anti-American. They should all go home. They are unsafe. They are not us. And that was xenophobia. But in Nashville, where I was at the Islamic center. I was experiencing this religion and these people in an extremely profound and different way. I was stretching past my preconceived notions and thoughts. I was pushing past any fear of the unknown and I was sitting side by side with women who seemed to be reaching out for their version of their God with the same loving devotion in which I reach out for mine. In the mosque, the imam started his sermon And eventually, he begins in Arabic, but he switches to English, and he greets the guest of the service, and he first recites their creed. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And then he said, the essential message of Islam is one of peace. He said, this week, we have seen wrong action come from a wrong person. And he explained as if he needed to defend his beloved religion to his guest that Islam does not stand for these killings, that Islam does not stand with these men and their wrongful decisions. The imam continued, radicalism in general has no color, no race, no gender, and no religion. And those words quickly expanded and stretched my perspective, and I now want to say them to you that radicalism has no face, no race, no color, no gender, and no religion. The men who planted these bombs were wrong. They were criminals, they were of sick mind and body. This is something that both the Iman and I and all of us agree upon. But there's so much more that I realize that we do agree upon, and I would have never known it had I not entered their holy sanctuary. My heart resonated with his reminder to be a people of peace. My heart resonated with his stand against discrimination, not just towards Muslims, but he said towards any form and to any human. He challenged us to stand up for injustice of in, any kind, and he ended his sermon by saying, Lord, forgive us of our sins and of our mistakes. We then stood for prayer, and they assembled themselves in rows and stand shoulder to shoulder to pray, so I fell in line And I stood with these women not because I could recite the same prayers, but because on that day of all days, I wanted to stand in solidarity with the human race. I wanted to stand for shalom, for peace, for ultimate harmony, because our world so desperately needed it. So they recited their prayers in Arabic, and although I didn't know what their words meant, I knew what their posture meant. They stood, hands gently upraised in cupped fashion, heads bowed, And then we knelt together and we bowed low, and I knew that they were showing reverence and devotion to their God. And we did this three times, and each time I joined them genuflecting, and each time I stretched more and more and more. When the service was over, slowly the women began to greet us and five of them chose to sit with us. They wanted to keep talking and fellowshipping and so we did. And we found that we had so much in common. We were women, we were sisters, we were daughters. And with a sincere smile, they asked if I had come for a college class. And I was almost ashamed to answer yes. But I promised them that I would want to come again. I would want to come again and I told them that I was a pastor at a Christian church down the road and we spent the next 40 minutes just discussing life and laughing and sharing ethics and smiles. And although life in Boston was at a standstill, my life here was stretching and growing as I experienced peace for two precious hours in that mosque. And I committed that day that I would continue to learn and to grow and to stretch long after that class would be over for our life and our country and our world so desperately needs it. So xenophobia manifests itself in fear. It has forms of negative energy that can ultimately cause warfare and destruction. It seeks to dehumanize human beings. Historically, we know this to be true. We look at what the Jewish people had to face in our world and the horror that Hitler showed us that we have a capacity of doing. And then think about, think about the way of the internment of Japanese Americans happened after World War II or during World War II How Roosevelt, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, forced and ordered around 130,000 Japanese Americans to incarceration and relocation camps, basically on an unfounded fear of involvement. Fast forward then to 1988 when President Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act, which apologized for that internment and basically chose to give them each a payment for each individual camp survivor. The legislation admitted that the government actions were based on racial prejudice, based on war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. May we learn from our mistakes. Finally, today, we have political candidates who use xenophobia to paint all Hispanics or Muslims in a very negative light, and we must change. We must face this head-on, and we must ask ourselves, how do we fix this? Let's look at the screens at this quote, another quote. He's basically the only person I'm quoting from today, Elie Wiesel. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. That is our challenge. Let's look at Jesus' words in Luke 10. It's a familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to think about it today in a fresh light. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer, so do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the man, he asked again, "'And who is my neighbor?' Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho "'and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, "'beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. "'Now by chance a priest was going down that road, "'and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. "'So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, "'saw him and passed by on the other side.'" But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, "'Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend.'" Which of these three, Jesus is asking, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. See, we are always asking, who is my neighbor? Almost selfishly, who is my neighbor? Another blind spot that we have. We're asking, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? Basically, we're asking, what's the least amount of work that I have to do as an individual? The better question from Jesus is, who do you think the needy man thought was his neighbor? See, we often ask ourselves, is this person really my responsibility? Do I have to get involved with that situation? Is that really mine to do? And then Jesus turns the question, he turns it around and says, you, you be a neighbor to all people. You be a neighbor to everyone, to those who are different, to those who you think don't deserve it. Go take care of them. Go show them mercy and love them, whoever they may be. Do we get that? Do we understand that we aren't just inclusive because we gave LGBTQ full membership? We will be fully inclusive when we are neighbor or see the humanity, the whole human family as our family. That all are truly beloved. Our beloved community should have and should needs to have room for all others. That's our vision. And that is our hope and goal. For us to see the human family and realize that we can be united by love and by deed more than just by beliefs. If we are united by beliefs, that is uniformity. That's not unity. Unity can be done by agreeing on deeds and agreeing on love and to love. We have blind spots. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield says, we are called to notice the person in front of us before the ideology inside of us. And then we are called to make choices to privilege that person, that seeing clearly. We need more experiences with humanity, I think. We need to not just be about black words on white pages. We don't just need to be about doctrine. We need to get up off our books and off of our views and look people and humanity into the eyes. We need to get out of our comfort zones and reach out to others, not to change them, not to go help them, but to simply know them. Do we feel the difference? We don't need to go to these places this afternoon or when you go to serve others. Can you just go sometimes just to get to know people, not to go hand out food? Okay, there's a difference. Can we go to simply know them? We need more education. We can do easy things for some of us. Get on Netflix. Watch some movies. There's some amazing movies that have come out about all of this. Watch The Kingdom, this action-based film that actually has some heart to it. Watch the uh, Oscar-nominated film, uh, winning film, The Crash. There's also a documentary that you can look up, and I'll put all this on the Facebook page, but it's called Waking Oak Creek And it's how a community was rocked by hatred, how they woke up and they changed. Do you remember the movie Higher Learning? It's been a little bit back. I loved that movie. I remember being so moved by that. The very last thing that you see before the credits roll is this quote that says, unlearn. Unlearn. May we unlearn intolerance. May we choose to not ignore or choose to ignore unnecessary fears. There is a need for us to unlearn unlearn, unlearn stereotypes that have become so entrenched in our minds and that are all over our media. See, the fear of the other is so widespread and ferocious that we may be tempted to think that this is an immutable attribute of human life, but we are not hardwired for prejudice. Look at that boy from that video. We are not hardwired for this. We are taught to hate We are manipulated by leaders who exploit our fear, our ignorance, or our feelings of weakness. We have a propensity then to favor our own groups, our own beliefs, and our own cultures at the expense though of the other. But we live in one world, one world, and we need to understand and respect each other. We need to live peacefully together and live up to the best of our respective traditions. We must learn humanity, all the diversity and the multifaceted beauty that we have in this world. Another quote by Ellie. There is divine beauty in learning. To learn means to accept the postulate that life did not begin at my birth. Others have been here before me, and I walk in their footsteps, and the books that I have read were composed by generations of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, teachers and disciples. And I am the sum total of their experiences, their quest, and so are you. See, studies consistently show that we will begin to end xenophobia simply by talking about it. We must discuss things, not only here within this congregation, in our church, you must discuss it with your families, with your friends, in our schools, and in our workplaces. We have to start by asking, am I xenophobic? Do I have this blind spot? And if you think that you might, that's okay. What you need to do is first recognize it. And then ask yourself, why are you afraid of this group? Why are they perceived as a threat to you? And then we must begin to continue living out of our ideals. Let us be an example of how to forge a more united and a more accepting world. We must also vote wisely and well. We must encourage legislation that combats xenophobia. We must insist on institutional equality. We must change this legal, cultural, and political climate of hostility and suspicions, especially towards those that are perceived as the other. But we cannot solve our problems until we recognize that we have them. It takes a better understanding of one another's stories, of one another's histories and experiences with the intention of finding a common thread. Do you realize that between 2000 and 2012, Nashville's foreign-born population grew 86%. In 2012, we had the fastest growing immigration population of any city in America. As increasing numbers of Burmese, Kurdish, Somali, and Sudanese immigrants and refugees began to call this home too. In fact, Nashville has the largest Kurdish population in the United States. Do we know this? on on Nolensville Pike, which has become sort of an immigration hub. There's this building called Cafe Asifran, Asifran, I want to say it right. And it stands as a testament to these diverse communities. It is a gateway into an international and socially diverse district. Cafe Azafran is both a beautiful event space, but it's also home to a collective of nonprofits who offer services in education, legal needs, healthcare, and the arts to immigrants, to refugees, and to the community as a whole. That's a field trip we should take, yes? Let's go down there and let's be exposed. Deepa Iyer is the author of this incredible book that I read this week called We Too Sing America. And it's based off the Langston Hughes um, poem, I To Sing America. But she says this she says, We must make it our responsibility, I love this, to be both disruptors and bridge builders in mo- movements for justice. To be both disruptors and bridge builders in movements for justice. She says, "...in spite of the forces of racial anxiety, Islamophobia, xenophobia, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh communities in the U.S. have developed tremendous resilience to withstand, resist, and overcome." She says, "...our resolve to move America towards a different course, an alternative direction, it remains intact." So the activists and organizers featured in this book, they offer us, they offer us strength and inspiration to hold fast to this resolve and this commitment to shaping a multiracial and an equitable America, even in the face of hateful attacks, of vilification and of turmoil. Their examples, they can move us all to act with conviction and with courage. Together, then, we can walk boldly towards a vision of a more inclusive and equitable future, one in which there are no more others, one in which we realize that there is a place for all of our beloved communities. So I want to ask the team to come back up. And as they do so, listen. We must stand for the goodness in all of humanity. You must believe that it's there. Oh, I ask you, do you believe that all are beloved? Because if you do, then let's stand for the goodness that's within our humanity. We must choose to make all humans feel welcome. That's inclusivity, and that is our goal. Samir Selmanovic, in one of my favorite books called It's Really All About God, he says, I have come to think as God's perceived absence in the world as a sign of God's faith in us. Listen to that. I've come to believe God's perceived absence in this world as a sign of God's faith in us. Yes, God believes in us, so we too should have faith in humanity. A friend of mine at dinner this week reminded me that some of us, some of us feel called to go actually break down walls, to boldly expose lots of light to very dark places. And we do that by our words, by our lives, and by our platforms. And others of us, though, have a different call others of us have a call to simply light one candle and to walk alongside someone come up beside someone to share some life together and to expose light in small ways so there's both needed though we need to recognize no matter what our call is if it's to do it in a bold and big way or to do it in a quiet quiet and small way that we all must choose to do this work together one last quote maybe I can read it. Just listen. Elie Wiesel in his Night Trilogy. He says, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, but never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities should become irrelevant. Wherever men or women are persecuted because of their race, because of their religion or political views, that place right there must at that moment become the center of the universe. Oh, may our eyes be open to that. But do me a favor, I ask for you to close your eyes for a minute. I want us to focus. I want us to think about, do you see your own blind spots? Are you aware Are you starting to become aware? Because it takes some work. Do you want to change your world and your family? Answer that for me. Do you want to change your world and your family? Do you want to be a part of a world that sees injustice, that owns it, and when needed, apologizes for it? But as we see it, then we will, in turn, alter the course of our world. That is my yes, and that is my work and i believe it's ours as a community and what an opportunity we all have for fanning the flame of love and light so ask yourself this morning what do you want
1: want to have feet of stone i don't want to have feet of, of stone I want to follow this river of life where it will have me go. I don't want to have feet of stone. I don't want to have a dagger. but a healer
0: you say amen this morning amen would you stand with me i want us to pray this blessing not only over ourselves but over our church over our community and over our world may this be our vision and our goal say it with me may we be the blessing today and not the curse may we encourage one another towards an abundant life May we seek peace and reconciliation in our own hearts and with the hearts of those around us. May we live humbly. May we see our enemy first as brother, as sister, as mother, or as father. May we give all people, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our communities, and our leaders, the benefit of the doubt. May we let love lead us. May we let generosity guide our actions. May we stand for what Christ stood for, or rather stand with those whom Christ stands with. May we get down off our fences and high posts and come down into the level ground, into the open space where all truly live. May we dwell in this fertile ground where our lives will eventually turn outward towards others. May we allow our focus to turn from me to them to you and finally to us. May we live united. May we seek shalom. May we be reminded of the image of God in all of our lives and may we seek communion with all. May we be the blessing and not the curse. If that is your heart, say amen. 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 I'm so honored that you are with us today. Join us for lunch. High, uh, not high school. There's college and young adult. I'll head over to Wild Wing Cafe. Let's continue to do good work together. Join us for that tour this afternoon. Get involved on the Facebook page. Let's talk about all of this. God bless you guys. Have an amazing week.